Welcome, everyone, to the new 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories podcast. Here you'll find a collection of Sherlock Holmes adventures, as well as the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories. Some from our archives at 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Stories for the Road, and some newly produced, all here for your entertainment. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Speaking of the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, today, part one of The Brazilian Cat. Our story begins. Suddenly I heard, amidst the roar of the storm, the creak and whine of the winch handle turning and the rattle of the grating as it passed through the slot. Great God, he was letting loose the Brazilian cat. It is hard luck on a young fellow to have expensive tastes, great expectations, aristocratic connections, but no actual money in his pocket, and no profession by which he may earn any. The fact was that my father, a good, sanguine, easy-going man, had such confidence in the wealth and benevolence of his bachelor elder brother, Lord Southerton, that he took it for granted that I, his only son, would never be called upon to earn a living for myself. He imagined that if there were not a vacancy for me on the great Southerton estates, at least there would be found some post in that diplomatic service which still remains the special preserve of our privileged classes. He died too early to realize how false his calculations had been. Neither my uncle nor the state took the slightest notice of me, or showed any interest in my career. An occasional brace of pheasants or basket of hares was all that ever reached me to remind me that I was heir to Otwell House and one of the richest estates in the country. In the meantime, I found myself a bachelor and a man about town, living in a suite of apartments in Grosvenor Mansions, with no occupation save that of pigeon-shooting and polo-playing at Hurlingham. Month by month I realized that it was more and more difficult to get the brokers to renew my bills or to cash any further post-obits upon an unentailed property. Ruin lay right across my path, and every day I saw it clearer, nearer, and more absolutely unavoidable. What made me feel my own poverty the more was that, apart from the great wealth of Lord Southerton, all my other relations were fairly well-to-do. The nearest of these was Everard King, my father's nephew and my own first cousin, who had spent an adventurous life in Brazil, and had now returned to this country to settle down on his fortune. We never knew how he made his money, but he appeared to have plenty of it, for he bought the estate of Greylands, near Clifton-on-the-Marsh, in Suffolk. For the first year of his residence in England, he took no more notice of me than my miserly uncle, but at last one summer morning, to my very great relief and joy, I received a letter asking me to come down that very day and spend a short visit at Greylands Court. I was expecting a rather long visit to Bankruptcy Court at the time, and this interruption seemed almost providential. If I could only get on terms with this unknown relative of mine, I might pull through yet. For the family's credit, he couldn't let me go entirely to the wall. I ordered my valet to pack my valise, and I set off the same evening for Clifton on the Marsh. After changing at Ipswich, a little local train deposited me at a small, deserted station lying amidst a rolling, grassy country, with a sluggish and winding river curving in and out amidst the valleys, between high, silted banks, which showed that we were within reach of the tide. No carriage was awaiting me. I found afterwards that my telegram had been delayed, so I hired a dog-cart at the local inn. The driver, an excellent fellow, was full of my relative's praises, and I learned from him that Mr. Everard King was already a name to conjure with in that part of the county. He had entertained the school children. He had thrown his grounds open to visitors. He had subscribed to charities. In short, 
His benevolence had been so universal that my driver could only account for it on the supposition that he had parliamentary ambitions. My attention was drawn away from my driver's panegyric by the appearance of a very beautiful bird which settled on the telegraph post beside the road. At first I thought that it was a jay, but it was larger, with brighter plumage. The driver accounted for its presence at once by saying that it belonged to the very man whom we were about to visit. It seems that the acclimatization of foreign creatures was one of his hobbies, and that he had brought with him from Brazil a number of birds and beasts which he was endeavoring to rear in England. When once we had passed the gates of Greylands Park, we had ample evidence of this taste of his. Some small spotted deer, a curious wild pig known, I believe, as a peccary, a gorgeously feathered oriole, some sort of armadillo, and a singular lumbering in-toed beast like a very fat badger, were among the creatures which I observed as we drove along the winding avenue. Mr. Everard King, my unknown cousin, was standing in person upon the steps of his house, for he had seen us in the distance, and guessed that it was I. His appearance was very homely and benevolent, short and stout, forty-five years old, perhaps, with a round, good-humored face, burned brown with the tropical sun, and shot with a thousand wrinkles. He wore white linen clothes, in true planter style, with a cigar between his lips, and a large Panama hat upon the back of his head. It was such a figure as one associates with a verandah bungalow, and it looked curiously out of place in front of this broad, stone English mansion, with its solid wings and its palladio pillars before the doorway. "'My dear!' he cried, glancing over his shoulder. "'My dear, here's our guest!' "'Welcome! Welcome to Greylands. "'I'm delighted to make your acquaintance, Cousin Marshall, "'and I take it as a great compliment "'that you should honor this sleepy little country place "'with your presence.' "'Nothing could be more hearty than his manner, "'and he set me in my ease in an instant. "'But it needed all his cordiality "'to atone for the frigidity and even rudeness of his wife, "'a tall, haggard woman, "'who came forward at his summons. "'She was, I believe, of Brazilian extraction,' "'though she spoke excellent English, "'and I excused her manners "'on the score of her ignorance of our customs. "'She did not attempt to conceal, however, "'either then or afterwards, "'that I was no very welcome visitor "'at Greylands Court. "'Her actual words were, as a rule, courteous, "'but she was the possessor "'of a pair of particularly expressive dark eyes, "'and I read in them very clearly from the first "'that she heartily wished me back in London once more.' However, my debts were too pressing, and my designs upon my wealthy relative were too vital for me to allow them to be upset by the ill temper of his wife, so I disregarded her coldness and reciprocated the extreme cordiality of his welcome. No pains had been spared by him to make me comfortable. My room was the charming one. He implored me to tell him anything which could add to my happiness. It was on the tip of my tongue to inform him that a blank check would materially help towards that end, but I felt that it might be premature in the present state of our acquaintance. The dinner was excellent, and as we sat together afterwards over his Havanas and coffee, which later he told me was specially prepared upon his own plantation, it seemed to me that all my driver's eulogies were justified, and that I had never met a more large-hearted and hospitable man. But in spite of his cheery good nature, he was a man with a strong will and a fiery temper of his own. Of this I had an example upon the following morning— the curious aversion which Mrs. Everard King had conceived towards me was so strong that her manner at breakfast was almost offensive, but her meaning became unmistakable when her husband had quitted the room. "'The best train in the day is at twelve-fifteen,' said she. "'I wasn't thinking of going today,' 
I answered, frankly, perhaps even defiantly, for I was determined not to be driven out by this woman. "'Oh, if it rests with you,' said she, and stopped with the most insolent expression in her eyes. "'I am sure,' I answered, "'that Mr. Everard King would tell me if I were outstaying my welcome.' "'What's this?' said a voice, and there he was in the room. He had overheard my last words, and a glance at our faces had told him the rest. In an instant his chubby, cheery face set into an expression of absolute ferocity. "'Might I trouble you to walk outside, Marshal?' said he. I'm, "'I'll mention at this point that my name is Marshal King.' He closed the door behind me, and then, for an instant, I heard him talking in a low voice of concentrated passion to his wife. This gross breach of hospitality had evidently hit upon his tenderest point. I'm no eavesdropper, so I walked out onto the lawn. Presently I heard a hurried step behind me, and there was the lady, her face pale with excitement, and her eyes red with tears. "'My husband has asked me to apologize to you, Mr. Marshal King,' said she, standing with downcast eyes before me. "'Please don't say another word, Mrs. King.' Her dark eyes suddenly blazed out at me. "'You fool!' she hissed, with frantic vehemence, and turning on her heel, swept back to the house. The insult was so outrageous, so insufferable, that I could only stand staring after her in bewilderment. I was still there when my host joined me. He was his cheery, chubby self once more. "'I hope that my wife has apologized for her foolish remarks,' said he. "'Oh, yes, yes, certainly,' I said. He put his hand through my arm and walked with me up and down the lawn. "'You must not take it seriously,' said he. "'It would grieve me inexpressibly if you curtailed your visit by even one hour. "'The fact is, there is no reason why there should be any concealment between relatives. "'That my poor dear wife is incredibly jealous. "'She hates that anyone, male or female, should for an instant come between us. "'Her ideal is a desert island and an eternal tete-a-tete. "'That gives you the clue to her actions, which are, I confess, upon this particular point, "'not very far removed from mania.' "'Tell me that you will think no more of it.' "'No, no, nah, certainly not. "'Then light this cigar and come round with me "'and see my little menagerie. "'Our story continues right after these sponsor messages. "'And now back to The Brazilian Cat by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. "'The whole afternoon was occupied by this inspection, "'which included all the birds, beasts, "'and even reptiles which he had imported. "'Some were free, some in cages.' "'a few actually in the house. "'He spoke with enthusiasm of his successes and his failures, "'his births and his deaths, "'and he would cry out in his delight like a schoolboy "'when, as we walked, some gaudy bird would flutter up from the grass "'or some curious beast slink into the cover. "'Finally he led me down a corridor "'which extended from one wing of the house. "'At the end of this there was a heavy door "'with a sliding shutter in it, "'and beside it there projected from the wall "'an iron handle attached to a wheel and a drum.' "'a line of stout bars extended across the passage. "'I'm about to show you the jewel of my collection,' said he. "'There is only one other specimen in Europe, "'now that the Rotterdam cub is dead. "'It is a Brazilian cat. "'But how does that differ from any other cat?' "'You'll soon see that,' said he, laughing. "'Will you kindly draw that shutter and look through?' "'I did so, and found that I was gazing into a large, empty room "'with stone flags and small, barred windows upon the farther wall. 
In the center of this room, lying in the middle of a golden patch of sunlight, there was stretched a huge creature, as large as a tiger, but as black and sleek as ebony. It was simply a very enormous and well-kept black cat, and it cuddled up and basked in that yellow pool of light exactly as a cat would do. It was so graceful, so sinewy, and so gently and smoothly diabolical that I couldn't take my eyes from the opening. "'Isn't he splendid?' said my host, enthusiastically. "'It's glorious. I never saw such a noble creature.' "'Some people call it a black puma,' he said, "'but really it is not a puma at all. "'That fellow was nearly eleven feet from tail to tip. Four years ago he was a little ball of back fluff "'with two yellow eyes staring out of it. "'He was sold me as a newborn cub "'up in the wild country at the headwaters of the Rio Negro. "'They speared his mother to death "'after she had killed a dozen of them.' "'They are ferocious, then? "'The most absolutely treacherous and bloodthirsty creatures upon earth. "'You talk about a Brazilian cat to an upcountry Indian "'and see him get the jumps. "'These cats prefer humans to game. "'This fellow has never tasted living blood yet, "'but when he does he will be a terror. "'At present he won't stand anyone but me in his den. "'Even Baldwin, the groom, dare not go near him. "'As to me, I am his mother and father in one.' As he spoke, he suddenly, to my astonishment, opened the door and slipped in, closing it instantly behind him. At the sound of his voice, the huge, lithe creature rose, yawned, and rubbed its round, black head affectionately against his side, while he patted and fondled it. "'Now, Tommy, into your cage,' said he. The monstrous cat walked over to one side of the room and coiled itself up under a grating. Everard King came out, and taking the iron handle which I had mentioned— "'he began to turn it. "'As he did so, the line of bars in the corridor "'began to pass through a slot in the wall "'and closed up the front of this grating "'so as to make an effective cage. "'When it was in position, "'he opened the door once more "'and invited me into the room, "'which was heavy with the pungent, "'musty smell peculiar to the great carnivora. "'That's how we work it,' said he. "'We give him the run of the room for exercise, "'and then at night we put him in his cage. "'You can let him out by turning the handle from the passage.' "'or you can, as you have seen, coop him up in the same way. "'No, no, you shouldn't do that. "'I had put my hand between the bars to pat the glossy, heaving flank. "'He pulled it back with a serious face. "'I assure you, he is not safe. "'Don't imagine that because I can take liberties with him anyone else can. "'He is very exclusive in his friends, aren't you, Tommy? "'Ah, he hears his lunch coming to him, don't you, boy?' A step sounded in the stone-flagged passage, and the creature had sprung to his feet and was pacing up and down the narrow cage, his yellow eyes gleaming, and his scarlet tongue rippling and quivering over the white line of his jagged teeth. A groom entered with a coarse joint upon a tray, and thrust it through the bars to him. He pounced lightly upon it, carried it off to the corner, and there, holding it between his paws, tore and wrenched at it, raising his bloody muzzle every now and then to look at us. It was a malignant, and yet fascinating sight. "'You can't wonder that I'm fond of him, can you?' said my host, as we left the room, especially when you consider that I've had the rearing of him. It was no joke bringing him over from the center of South America, but here he is, safe and sound, and, as I've said, far the most perfect specimen in Europe. The people at the zoo are dying to have him, but I really can't part with him. Now, I think that I've inflicted my hobby upon you long enough, so we cannot do better than follow Tommy's example and go to our lunch.'
"'My South American relative was so engrossed by his grounds "'and their curious occupants "'that I hardly gave him credit at first "'for having any interests outside them. "'That he had some, and pressing ones, "'was soon borne in upon me "'by the number of telegrams which he received. "'They arrived at all hours, "'and were always opened by him "'with the utmost eagerness and anxiety upon his face. "'Sometimes I imagine that it must be the turf, "'and sometimes the stock exchange.' "'but certainly he had some very urgent business going forwards "'which was not transacted upon the downs of Suffolk. "'During the six days of my visit, "'he had never fewer than three or four telegrams a day, "'and sometimes as many as seven or eight. "'I had occupied these six days so well "'that by the end of them I had succeeded "'in getting upon the most cordial terms with my cousin. "'Every night we had sat up late in the billiard-room, "'he telling me the most extraordinary stories "'of his adventures in America.' "'stories so desperate and reckless "'that I could hardly associate them "'with the little brown chubby man before me. "'In return, I ventured upon "'some of my own reminiscences of London life, "'which interested him so much "'that he vowed he would come up "'to Grosvenor Mansions and stay with me. "'He was anxious to see the faster side of city life, "'and certainly, though I say it, "'he could not have chosen a more competent guide. "'It was not until the last day of my visit "'that I ventured to approach that which was on my mind.' I told him frankly about my pecuniary difficulties and my impending ruin, and I asked his advice, though I hoped for something more solid. He listened attentively, puffing hard at his cigar. "'But surely,' said he, "'you are the heir of a relative, Lord Southerton?' "'I have every reason to believe so,' I answered, "'but he would never make me any allowance.' "'No, no, I've heard of his miserly ways. "'My poor Marshal, your position has been a very hard one, "'By the way, have you heard any news of Lord Southerton's health lately?' "'He's always been in a critical condition ever since my childhood,' I answered. "'Exactly. A creaking hinge, if there ever was one. "'Your inheritance may be a long way off. "'Dear me, how awkwardly situated you are!' "'I had some hopes, sir, that you, knowing all the facts, might be inclined to advance.' "'Don't say another word, my dear boy,' he cried, with the utmost cordiality. "'We shall talk it over to-night, "'and I give you my word "'that whatever is in my power shall be done.' "'I was not sorry that my visit was drawing to a close, "'for it is unpleasant to feel "'that there is one person in the house "'who eagerly desires your departure. "'Mrs. King's sallow face and forbidding eyes "'had become more and more hateful to me. "'She was no longer actively rude. "'Her fear of her husband prevented her. "'But she pushed her insane jealousy "'to the extent of ignoring me, "'never addressing me, "'and in every way making my stay at Greylands "'as uncomfortable as she could. "'So offensive was her manner during that last day "'that I should certainly have left "'had it not been for that interview with my host in the evening "'which would, I hoped, retrieve my broken fortunes. "'It was very late when it occurred, "'for my relative, who had been receiving "'even more telegrams than usual during the day, "'went off to his study after dinner, "'and only emerged when the household had retired to bed. "'I heard him go round, locking the doors, "'as custom was of a night, "'and finally he joined me in the billiard-room. "'His stout figure was wrapped in a dressing-gown, "'and he wore a pair of red Turkish slippers "'without any heels. "'Settling down into an armchair, "'he brewed himself a glass of grog, "'in which I could not help noticing "'that the whisky considerably predominated over the water. "'My word!' said he. "'What a night!' "'It was indeed. "'The wind was howling and screaming round the house.' "'and the latticed windows rattled and shook as if they were coming in. "'The glow of the yellow lamps and the flavor of our cigars "'seemed the brighter and more fragrant for the contrast. "'Now, my boy,' 
said my host. "'We have the house and the night to ourselves. "'Let me have an idea of how your affairs stand, "'and I will see what can be done to set them in order. "'I wish to hear every detail.' "'Thus encouraged, I entered into a long exposition "'in which all my tradesmen and creditors "'from my landlord to my valet figured in turn. "'I had notes in my pocketbook, "'and I marshaled my facts and gave, I flatter myself, "'a very businesslike statement of my own unbusinesslike ways "'and lamentable position.' I was depressed, however, to notice that my companion's eyes were vacant and his attention elsewhere. When he did occasionally throw out a remark, it was so entirely perfunctory and pointless that I was sure he had not in the least followed my remarks. Every now and then he roused himself and put on some show of interest, asking me to repeat or to explain more fully, but it was always to sink once more into the same brown study. At last he rose and threw the end of his cigar into the grate, "'I'll tell you what, my boy,' said he. "'I never had a head for figures, so you will excuse me. "'I must jot it all down upon paper, "'and let me have a note of the amount. "'I'll understand it when I see it in black and white.' "'The proposal was encouraging. "'I promised to do so. "'And now it's time we were in bed. "'By Jove, there's one o'clock striking in the hall.' "'The tingling of the chiming clock "'broke through the deep roar of the gale.' The wind was sweeping past with the rush of a great river. "'I must see my cat before I go to bed,' said my host. "'A high wind excites him. "'Will you come?' "'Certainly,' said I. "'Then tread softly and don't speak, for everyone is asleep.' We passed quietly down the lamp-lit Persian-rugged hall and through the door at the further end. All was dark in the stone corridor, but a stable lantern hung on a hook, and my host took it down and lit it. There was no grating visible in the passage, so I knew that the beast was in its cage. "'Come in,' said my relative, and opened the door. A deep growling as we entered showed that the storm had really excited the creature. In the flickering light of the lantern, we saw it, a huge black mass coiled in the corner of its den and throwing a squat, uncouth shadow upon the whitewashed wall. Its tail switched angrily among the straw. "'Poor Tommy's not in the best of tempers.' "'said Everard King, holding up the lantern and looking in at him. "'What a black devil he looks, doesn't he? "'I must give him a little supper to put him in a better humor. "'Would you mind holding the lantern for a moment?' "'I took it from his hand, and he stepped to the door. "'His larder is just outside here,' said he. "'You'll excuse me for an instant, won't you?' "'He passed out, and the door shut with a sharp metallic click behind him. That hard, crisp sound made my heart stand still. A sudden wave of terror passed over me. A vague perception of some monstrous treachery turned me cold. I sprang to the door, but there was no handle upon the inner side. Here, I cried. Let me out. All right, don't make a row, said my host from the passage. You've got the light all right. Yes, but I don't care about being locked in alone like this. Don't you? I heard his hearty, chuckling laugh. "'You won't be alone long.' "'Let me out, sir,' I repeated angrily. "'I tell you, I don't allow practical jokes of this sort.' "'Practical is the word,' said he, with another hateful chuckle. And then suddenly I heard, amidst the roar of the storm, the creak and whine of the winch-handle turning and the rattle of the grating as it passed through the slot. "'Great God! He was letting loose the Brazilian cat!' We'll return with part two of The Brazilian Cat 
by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We appreciate reviews very much, so if you're enjoying 1001 Sherlock Holmes stories and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, please do send us a review and let us know. Thank you. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Until next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.